it, uh, I was reflecting on the fact that this is one of those moments where life in some ways has come full circle. Uh, visiting us today is the uh, founding pastor of what was then Encounter, became CBC, Jason Hawk, Joni Hawk. It's always a pleasure to have them with us. Welcome. Wonderful to see you as always. Uh, yeah, thank you. Praise God. And, uh, and we're also welcoming new members to what is now Christ Bible Church. I don't know. It just feels like life in some ways has come full circle. There we are. Uh, welcome. I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah, uh, chapter 2, well, specifically chapter 117 to chapter 2, uh, verse 10. Uh, we are making available today a little uh, journal Bible. So on one hand, on the one side, you have the text of Scripture, and on the other side, you have a place to take notes. If you would like one, they're being passed around. Just gently raise your hand or give uh, Peter a knowing look. Uh, one of those should work. And uh, you, you can get one if you are interested in having the text of Jonah and um, being able to take notes. Also, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it's, it, you know, we will be interacting heavily with the text. So it's good to have something in front of you that you can appeal to and make, make sure I'm saying true things. Uh, so uh, that's being distributed. Raise your hand if you'd like one. Okay. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 to Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. Let's hear God's word together. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, my, you brought up my life from the pit O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are mighty to save. Your power is very great, and you rescue rebels from judgment. We thank you, Father, that when, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, running away from you, you graciously conquered our stubborn heart, transformed us, brought us to yourself. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to stand condemned in our place and rise again that in his name we might have the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Father, you have worked powerfully in our lives and for this we praise your name. And we ask that you would do it again, Lord. We ask this morning as we hear your word to us that you would once again move powerfully in our midst, drawing the dead to life and building up your people. Father, we ask that you would do this for the honor and praise of your name and our joy. Amen. 
There's a famous prayer called the Valley of Vision, a well-known prayer. Maybe it's not quite famous, at least well-known. And uh, the theme of that prayer is that it is in the valley, the low points of life, that we especially see the truth about God and ourselves. The prayer says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou has brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. And the idea is that in those moments of sorrow and heartache, we uniquely see the truth about God. And it's not just the truth about God that we see, we see the truth about ourselves. In those moments where life hits rock bottom, all the masks come off, and we look at ourselves as we really are, warts and all. Uh, we see the truth even about other people, those who are truly our friends and those who perhaps are fair-weather friends. Uh, but it's in the valley that so many things become clear to us. And Jonah is, in this chapter of Jonah, in the valley, and he also has a moment of clarity. He sees things, ironically, most clearly in the belly of a great fish. That's when things seem to come uh, into sharp focus for Jonah, and he turns, at least partly. Uh, the background to uh, the prayer in chapter 2 is Jonah's disobedience in chapter 1. The word of the Lord comes to his prophet. Go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians. The prophet of the Lord says, no. It goes in the opposite direction, does what he wants. Goes to Joppa, goes in the opposite direction. But the Lord won't be evaded, and so he sends a storm on the sea forcing the pagan mariners to eventually hurl Jonah over the side of the ship because of his disobedience. And that's where we left Jonah last week. Uh, in the depths, in the sea, the waves crashing over him. And uh, the next step in his dire situation, we just read, verse 17, is that a great fish or a great whale comes and swallows the reluctant prophet of the Lord. This morning we will see three things as we look at Jonah's prayer. Uh, first, heart change comes through the storm. Second, the Lord rescues from the grave. And third, grace is to be shared, not hoarded. Grace is to be shared, not hoarded. Uh, notice the location from, uh, where this particular prayer is made. It's got to be the most exotic location for a prayer to be made in Scripture. There are examples of prayers being made in the temple, uh, prayers being made in the midst of the battle. But I think this is unique in that the prophet of the Lord is in the belly of a fish, and from here he is petitioning the Lord, his God. And this is his prayer. Verse 2 is a summary of the prayer, describing his dire situation, his need for rescue, his prayer to God, and God's rescue of him. Uh, it's interesting, if you re listen to this prayer carefully, it very much sounds like Jonah is giving thanks for a salvation he has already experienced. This is somewhat surprising because he's still in the belly of the whale. Uh, what's going on? Well, it seems to be the case, if we look at verses 3 through 6, which describe his ordeal, that the fundamental threat to his life was drowning. And the whale was an answer, in, uh, apparently, to a prayer that he, asked, that he prayed before this one. Notice verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Apparently, the whale was God's way of saving Jonah from drowning. So at that moment, he was praying for deliverance, it seems. 
And here in verse 2, he is thanking God for the deliverance that has come through the well, and presumably was also a pledge that he would make it safely to the other side. He says that he was swallowed up by Sheol and entered its belly. Sheol in scripture is the realm of the dead. It's where you go when you leave the sunlit lands of the living and you descend to the dark depths of the dead. That's Sheol. Sheol has swallowed up Jonah. It's as though he's, he's as good as dead essentially. And God has rescued him from Sheol. Again, it's significant to reflect on the place Jonah is praying. In the grave, in the belly of the fish, in the heart of the sea. And the significance is, there is nowhere you can go on this earth where God doesn't hear your prayers. You are, God is never out of earshot, as it, as it were. God is always ready to hear the prayers of his people. It doesn't matter how far you have descended into the dark cold depths of the sea, there is a God who continues to hear our prayers. And that's an encouragement to those of you who feel like there's no way God can possibly listen to me given how deep I've sunk. Jonah's message to us this morning is, yes, he can and he does. God listens to the prayers of his people. Even when no one can hear Jonah screaming as he drowns in the sea, there is one who can hear Jonah screaming, and that's the Lord. He listens and he answers. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10 tell us, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no place where you can go to be outside of God's life-giving presence. There's no place where you can go where God is out of earshot. Wherever you are, God is always, in a profound sense, just a prayer away. God hears his servant even in the belly of a fish, whale, the depth of, a, the, depth of the sea. Then he goes on after the summary statement in verse 2 to give us an overview of his ordeal in verses 3 through 6. He says, you cast me deep in... Cast me into the deep sea, into the heart of the seas. Those of you who have ever been in the middle of the ocean know what a watery wasteland it is, especially when you don't see any land. Um, I've been on a cruise ship before, and I would like to, in the evening, especially when it was cloudy and there was no starlight or moon, I'd like to go to the back of the ship, sit at the very edge, and just look out on this watery abyss. And almost more terrible than drowning is the prospect of being in that dark watery nothing before the drowning, right? We all shudder at that prospect. Uh, In scripture, the waves are associated with judgment and even chaos. Before God brings order to the world in the seven days of creation, there's this watery mass there in Genesis 1.1. It's associated with decreation, with chaos, and Jonah is plunged into the depths of this chaos, into the depths of the sea, and he's desperate. He says in verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. You can hear the anguish. I am driven away from your sight. I'm cut off from you, O God. Now, if you've been reading the book of Jonah carefully, you will see the irony here. What does Jonah most want to do in chapter 1? What does he want to get away from? The presence of the Lord. And we're told twice that he's running from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to hear from the Lord. He doesn't want to obey the Lord's commands. He wants to get away from the Lord. 
And now in a sense, he's experiencing that. He's cut off from the Lord. Ah, but he regrets it. He feels the anguish of being cut off from God. Perhaps the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. Especially when what you want is to be away from God. If you're here this morning and you don't want God, you want to live your life the way you want to live your life, apart from him, understand that there is, a, there is the possibility that God will say, yes, you want to live apart from me? Go ahead. And there is nothing more terrible than that in the world. God is the fountain of life. To be in his presence is to have fullness of joy. There is no higher good that we can know as create his creatures than to have a relationship with the Lord. He satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. To lose God is to lose everything, and no amount of wealth or relationships or health or anything else in creation can compensate for the loss of God. And Jonah feels acutely uh, the pain of being separated from the Lord. He now no longer wants to run away from the Lord. He wants to turn back. Verse 4b, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. At first glance, that appears to be a statement of confidence, which I don't think fits the context well. He's still drowning at this point. Uh, I don't think he's saying, well, I'm going to go back and be in the temple and I'm going to pray again. I think what he's saying is, I am once again turning back to you in prayer. I'm turning back to your presence, which is symbolized by the temple. I am turning to the temple that is I'm turning back to you in prayer. This is conf- confirmed to some degree by verse, uh, to a certain degree by verse 7. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. This is a common idea in the Psalms that you turn to God when you turn to the temple. For instance, uh, Psalm 28 verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 28 verse 2. Uh, so Jonah is saying, I'm done running. I, it's, it stings to be away from the Lord. I am turning my attention back to the presence of the Lord. I am asking for help. Verse 5 continues the description of his ordeal. Uh, Jonah says, Weeds were wrapped about my head. Not only is he sinking into the water like a stone, but even the seaweed is being wrapped around him. And he feels constricted in his movement. The image here is of suffocation. He's got nowhere to go. He's in desperate states, uh, straits. He says, I went down to the, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Here is another reference to death, to Sheol. The land that he's referring to, the land that no one escapes from, is the realm of the dead. The bars decisively close, and nobody comes back from the grave. Jonah is saying, I was as good as dead. It was, the situation was utterly hopeless, and there was no way out. I want you to look carefully at that word down in verse 6. I went down to the land. That's a key word in the book of Jonah. When Jonah runs from the Lord, where does he go? He goes down to Joppa. And when the storm comes, where does Jonah go? Well, he goes down into the heart of the ship to sleep. In disobeying against the Lord, Jonah goes down, but he has no idea just how far he'll go down. He discovers in chapter 2 that he's going to go much further down than he ever expected when he went down to Joppa. And the point is that sin takes you far further than you ever expected to go. It takes you far further down into misery than you ever thought you would go. How many people have said, 
When I did that, I never thought it would take me here. I never thought that by doing that, I would ever experience this kind of mess and utterly blow up my life. Sin takes us down, down, down to the depths is the point. Psalm 107, verses 10 and 11 say, Some sat in darkness and utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they had rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. When we rebel against the Lord, we go down. One biblical instance of this is the character of Shechem in Genesis 34. Shechem is a non-Israelite, and he looks at Dinah. He lusts after her. He takes her. He seizes her. He lies with her. And he has no idea what this act of wickedness is going to cost him. As a result of his lust, he doesn't just lose his own life, but every male in that city, his father and every man that he knows, is killed, and the women and children are enslaved. He had no idea just how far down things would go through acquiescing to lust. So we see as we look at Jonah the pain and anguish of rebellion against the Lord. At the same time, however, we have to recognize uh, that Jonah's ordeal is also a severe mercy. It's precisely because he's hurled overboard, swallowed by a fish, that he comes to his senses. Uh, prior to this moment, what is Jonah doing? Hardening his heart. Lord, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to go my own way. But it's precisely at this moment, uh, this moment of anguish, that Jonah realizes just how far he's come. And it's this moment that causes him to repent. We saw that in verse 4. Instead of running away from the presence of God, he runs back to God. And then we see it in uh, chapter 3. Instead of continuing to run from the Lord, he now goes toward Nineveh and does what God told him to do. This moment of suffering, difficulty, this brush with death, brings him to his senses, and he sees that he needs to turn back to God. Uh, That's what suffering frequently does. It brings us to our senses. It causes us to see, Lord, I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn back to you. Now, I want to make something very clear. It's not correct to say that God punishes his people. All those who trust in Jesus Christ have had all of their sins taken from them and put on Jesus. Every single one of the sins that we have committed has has been punished in Jesus Christ. The demands of God's justice against our sin have been completely satisfied at the cross. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we experience affliction as God's people, we shouldn't think, oh, God is punishing me. All of your punishment was placed on Jesus, and he took it away. Instead, how we should conceive of suffering is as fatherly correction, chastisement, discipline. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be like Jesus. And he uses pain and suffering and heartache to make us more like Jesus. Sometimes our will is so hardened in opposition to God that God has to use suffering to sort of bend our will into compliance with his. The ruts of sin in our soul are so deep that he has to use anguish to cause us to submit to him. That's exactly what we see in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What would you rather have? Sin with comfort and ease 
or Christ-likeness with difficulty and hardship? If you have to pick, which would you rather have? I think when we're thinking clearly, all of us would say, Lord, do whatever it takes for me to love like Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to reflect his character. Do whatever it takes. Whatever I have to lose to gain Christ-likeness, Lord, I want that. God uses these severe mercies, these hardships, to make us like Christ. And I think you, as you look back on your own life, you can see that. Those moments where your heart was broken, where you were devastated, where you came to a place where you said, Lord, I simply don't have any more answers. I'm at a dead end and have no way how to go forward. But Father, I am looking to do for, for you to do what only you can do. And those are the moments in which we learn to trust God. We become more humble and gentle and capable of sympathizing with others. So when we are afflicted, one place we go to find comfort is God is using this to make me like Jesus. And that's what I want more than even an easy life. And so I yield. It's the storms, it's the near-death experience that brings Jonah to his senses that's often the case for us. He goes on in verse 6 and says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Again, that's a reference, as we've noted, to Sheol, to the place of uh, death. But then notice the shift at the end of 6. This is the transition point in the prayer. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Salvation is of the Lord. I was going down. There was absolutely no hope for me. My situation was hopeless from a human standpoint. Nevertheless, the Lord reached down into those dark depths of the sea and lifted me up. That's what God does. He rescues. And there is no obstacle so great that it can keep God from rescuing. We've noted throughout that Jonah characterizes his ordeal as a descent into the grave. We saw that in verse 2. They swallowed up by Sheol, the place of the dead. We notice it in verse 6 where he refers to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And then he refers to it again when he says, you brought my life from the pit. Pit is a way of, in the Old Testament of talking about the grave, the place of the dead. So Jonah conceives this salvation as a kind of rescue from the place of the dead. He had no more options. He was done. But God, as it were, reached into death and brought Jonah out. God is the God who is so powerful that he can reach even into the grave and pull his people out. What we're meant to see is that when all of our options are done and we have no good way forward and we're as good as dead, God can find a way. What is impossible with us is possible with God. He is mighty to save. Psalm 68 verse 20. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. When we reach that point where we have no more options, that's not a problem for God. He rescues people in that kind of plight. That's who he is, and that's what he does. So the invitation to us is to trust that God. That God who can reach into the watery depths of the sea and bring people back up is the God who can rescue you from the troubles that you're facing today. Rest in him. Do what Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Or what Luther says, pray and let God worry. The God who rescued Jonah from the dark depths of the sea can bring you out of your predicament. Go to him, trust in him. And yet it's important to also, is that, did change it up here, did it change over there? Okay, there we are. You never can tell 
where was I? Yes. So we see the power of God displayed in his reaching down and rescuing Jonah from the dark depths. But it's not just that God is powerful to save. Uh, we also see that God is committed to his people. Look at verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord, the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Not just he prayed to the Lord or a Lord, but he prayed to his God. Notice again in verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. This is the language of covenant. Covenant is a crucial idea in scripture. It's the idea that God solemnly commits himself to his people and they commit themselves to him. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I am pledging myself to you. And so we don't just call upon our God or God, we call upon my God who is committed to me. That idea of covenant is reflected also in verse 8. Uh, when it speaks of steadfast love, this is God's covenant loyalty. His perfect, unfailing commitment to the well-being of his people. Such that whatever happens advances their well-being. So God is not just absolutely powerful to save. He is absolutely committed to the well-being of his people. Absolute power, absolute loyalty to each and every one of us. Such that, as I said, in everything that comes to pass, he advances our good, our final eternal gladness in him one way or another. Surely that's a reason to not fret as much as we do. We live in a world of turmoil. People look around and wonder what's going to happen economically. What does the future hold? And there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of attempt to hoard and prepare and stock things up in the backyard. Uh, recognizing, though, that God is mighty to save and utterly committed to us should, should free us to a degree. It doesn't mean not be wise, be aware of what's happening, but it means that our fu fundamental confidence is not in our bank account, shrewd investments. Our fundamental confidence has to be in the Lord. Approach him with confidence and prayer. If he is the God who is committed to his people, he listens to our prayers. He is ready to rescue us, either by delivering us from what we fear or strengthening us to go through it. But either way, God is our deliverer. If we believe that, we can live with composure, courage, and strength, even when the world around us is filled with anxiety about what's coming. God is a great God of salvation. Finally, grace is meant to be generously bestowed on others, not hoarded. Grace is meant to be distributed to others, not hoarded. Uh, there is the turning point in verse 6 that, that underscores the grace of God. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Now to see the grace in that verse, we have to consider chapter 1. What is Jonah doing in chapter 1? He's running from the Lord. God says go, he says no. Runs in the opposite direction. And what we discover in chapter 1 is that Jonah deserves to die. He is hurled over the side of that ship. He deserves death. But what does he get in 2? He deserves death, but instead he gets salvation. He's rescued. This is what grace is. We deserve death and judgment, but instead, God, out of his sheer goodness and grace, gives us life and blessing. We deserve condemnation, and we instead are accepted. And not at all because of any intrinsic worth in us. I mean, Jonah has no claim on God. Jonah has rebelled against the Lord. He deserves what he gets, good and hard. But God is a God of grace, who gives undeserving sinners mercy, and so he rescues the undeserving Jonah. 
Second way we see God's grace is in, in verse 9. This is the end of the prayer, and he commits to worshiping God when he's delivered. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Quick parenthesis here. Jonah knows that the appropriate response to God's salvation is adoration. When God rescues you from your plight and brings you safely on the other side, the appropriate response is thanksgiving and praise. As God's redeemed, we gather here on Sunday morning to vigorously adore our Savior because it is fitting that we should praise him for what he has done for us. But what I want you to see in verse 9 is the parallel between Jonah's condition, after God rescues him, and the condition of the mariners in chapter 1. Remember, in chapter 1, we're introduced to these pagan mariners who don't know the Lord, at least initially, and yet in their plight, they cry out to the Lord, and he rescues them. And in verse 16, we're told, The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What does Jonah do? I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Notice the parallel? Between the prophet of God and pagan mariners? They've both wound up in the same place. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jonah was not rescued from the waves because he was a prophet, because he was a Hebrew, because of his religious credentials. Jonah was rescued for the same reason the pagans were rescued, and that's because God is good. God is gracious to sinners, and even though they have no claim on him, he rescues them. And so we're meant to sit back and ponder this a little bit. Like These pagans who don't know the Lord are essentially in the same place that Jonah is, revealing that it's not your religiosity, it's not that you came from a religious family or it's not your occupation as a prophet of the Lord. None of these things finally save you. What saves you is the sheer, undeserved grace of God. Neither category had a claim on God, and yet, because of his grace, he saves them. We need to understand that this is how God saves sinners. He doesn't rescue us from judgment and sin and guilt because we have any claim, because we're good people who obey his commands. We contribute nothing to our salvation except our sin. There is no good thing that we do that causes God to save us. He saves us entirely as a gift by grace. The Apostle Paul says as much in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation to, comes to us freely because it cost Jesus everything. Because he endured the judgment of God on the cross, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. We are saved not by our moral striving and prayers and goodness, but because of what Jesus has done as a gift. Now, Jonah, being a recipient of God's grace, how should he respond to other people who need it? He, he knows what it's like to disobey against the Lord, to be plunged into the waters of judgment, uh, and then to be brought safely to the other side by the grace of God. How would we expect him to relate to the Assyrians after this ordeal? You would expect that having received God's undeserved kindness, he would go to these Assyrians and say, hey, I was where you are, and God had mercy on me. 
And there is mercy and grace for you as well. But part of what Jonah 2 does in the book is it shows us how utterly wicked Jonah's response is in chapter 4. Jonah has tasted the undeserved mercy of God and then turns around to people who need the grace of God just as much as he does. And he says, Lord, don't let him have it. And when God shows mercy, he is furious. Jonah shows us how wicked and ugly it is to be a recipient of God's mercy and then to want to withhold that same mercy from others. We are beggars who have been freely given bread, and our response should be to point other beggars to the source of that bread, not to hoard the bread and not want other people to get it. And the challenge that we're confronted with, is there, is, is there a place in our lives and in our attitudes where we're Jonah's? We rejoice in the mercies God has shown us, but are we withholding that same grace from other people in our lives? One of the ways you can see that you are is when you're harsh and irritable and demanding towards people, when they don't meet your expectation. See, this is often in marriages with spouses. You come together, you agree. We pick up the socks in the room. It's a good idea to pick up the socks in the room. We agree, pick up the socks in the room. And lo and behold, the socks, there they are, uh, not picked up. What, didn't we talk about this? Didn't we, didn't we have a discussion about this? What are you doing, right? Uh, or commonly with finances, right? Will you budget? Okay, we agree, we agree, right? Right, yeah, okay. This is the budget, we won't spend a penny more. And then of course, inevitably that doesn't happen, and so you sit down and you say, okay, what happened? And, and it's easy to, to justify your irritability and, and your attack on the other person with the fact that we agree. We ha- we, this was a shared, man, This was a shared expectation. You didn't hold your end up, and so you get both barrels, right? Uh, Is that what God does? You know his expectations. But of course, you consistently live up to those. Of course, you don't. And now when you fail to meet his expectations, how does he deal with you? It's patient. He forgives. He understands that growth takes a while. He works steadily on you. And that's the way we should be with people in our lives. Not hard on them, but kind, patient, holding them accountable, but gently helping them move forward, not letting them have it when they don't meet the standard. Because that's not how God deals with us. Another way we can act like Jonah is when we are slow to forgive others who wrong us. In light of God's forgiveness of us, we consider how much he has forgiven and continues to forgive. We should be the fastest people in the world who forgive wrongs that others do against us. Are you like that? Are you quick to, of course I'll forgive you. Are you quick to let go of the animosity in your heart towards people? Or do you engage in maybe passive aggressive speech, ways of putting them in their place without putting them in their place? Are you quick to forgive? And finally, most obviously of all, the most direct comparison with Jonah is do you want your enemies, your political and cultural enemies, to be saved? Do you want them to be rescued from God's judgment and know the joy of salvation? Or do you want them to get it? Right? In your heart of hearts, when you pray for those who disagree with you, political issues, cultural issues, do you want them to rejoice in the same salvation that you've come to taste? Or is there a part of you that says, well, I hope they get what they deserve? Not recognizing that 
The only difference between you and them is the grace of God. How are you towards people that you view as political and cultural opponents, perhaps? What is your attitude towards them? Paul tells us what our response should characteristically be in Titus 3, verses 1 through 5. He writes to believers and says, Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to his own mercy. Paul says that we can treat people with gentleness and respect when we understand that we were in exactly the same boat. We were once haters of God, rebels, but we've received mercy. And when we taste the sweetness of God's mercy and love for us, we are able to extend it to other people. We won't hoard it. We will extend to others the mercy that God has given to us. So in the first instance, we are to stand back and see what God has done for us. Jonah here is speaking with poetical exaggeration, isn't he? We saw earlier that he describes his descent into the sea as a kind of descent into the grave. And God metaphorically saves him for the grave. But what is poetical exaggeration in Jonah is historical reality in the Gospels. Jesus Christ actually went to the cross, bore the judgment of God for our sins, and God the Father actually reached into Sheol, reached into death, and raised him up to new life. And all those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ will one day be brought from the grave to newness of life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Jesus Christ will uh, come back. He describes the second coming in chapter 4, and he talks about the cry of command that the Lord will issue. And when he issues that cry, the dead in Christ will rise. Lord Jesus Christ himself will summon us from the grave to new life. That means that not even death can sever the relationship we have with God. There is nothing in this universe that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. Not even death can break the iron bond that exists between the believer and God. And we look forward to the day when we will join Jesus in his victory. That is the grace that God has bestowed upon us. That is how he has loved us undeserving sinners. And if that's what he has done for us, that's the same grace that we ought to extend to others. Amen.